Welcome to Research Rundown with UIC EMBS, a research podcast by students for students. Each episode will be meeting with a UIC faculty member to discuss the exciting work they're doing and how you can get involved. Today's guest is Dr. Thomas Royston from the Acoustics and Vibrations Lab. Welcome, Dr. Royston. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Research Rundown. Um, I know you're very busy, so I truly appreciate you taking the time to have this chat with me and talk about your work and kind of introduce all the exciting stuff you're doing to students who may be interested in joining or are unfamiliar with um, what you're doing right now. So thank you very much. Okay, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I was hoping we could maybe start with, I would say, what's a standard introduction um, and just hear a little bit about more about you um, in terms of your academic and professional background. Um, and then I think that would be a good segue into some of the work that you're doing and more of like the research end of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. I've, well, I've been at uh, UIC for a pretty long time, been here since 1995. I actually received my degrees in mechanical engineering from Ohio State, uh, all of my degrees there, bachelor's, master's, PhD, uh, between like 85, 95. Um, and my area, my interest was and always has been generally in the area of acoustics. Uh, and so I came to UIC, I started in mechanical in 95, uh, back then, you could actually go from a PhD into a, sometimes into a faculty position and uh, not not do the postdoc. That's not so common these days. Uh, and but I always remember that the summer before I even started, when I was still actually at Ohio State, I was contacted by some uh, physicians at Rush who were doing some diagnostic stuff uh, with stethoscopes, uh, acoustics, and they were looking for someone with some expertise in acoustics. And um, fortunately, the Dean of Engineering at UIC at that time knew who I was, knew I was coming on board and put them in contact with me. And so I started that collaboration and that, that went on for decades, couple decades. Uh, and there's other things that uh, really Kind of from day one, though my PhD was not specific on uh, to medical applications, a lot of my research, even before I transitioned from mechanical over to bioengineering, has been uh, focused on uh, medical diagnostics and, and medical therapy uh, using uh, acoustics, or more generally what I would call uh, mechanical wave motion. In, in, in this case, in bio, biological tissues. So that's, I guess that's, uh, I hope that answers the question. It does, I can yeah. elaborate. <laughs> no, that does. Uh, it's really yeah. interesting because you did, it seems like have that transition from yeah. more of like the yeah. acoustics to this application in BioE. Right, yeah, and I, I would add that at Ohio State at that time, I don't think they, they didn't even have a biomedical engineering program. They do now, um, but anyway, you know, it's, uh, 30 years ago, maybe there was, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 uh, bioe BME programs in the oh, country. Wow. Now there's now there's like 100 and, 140 or so. Yeah. Uh, well, so, and this was, um, well, a couple of semesters ago now, but I believe it was spring 2019, which I realize 
how long ago that is now um, relative to this whole year, uh, but you were actually the faculty advisor for my BioE 250 uh, team. And I remember mm -hmm. in your office, you had this big harp uh, that I yeah. think you mentioned, yeah. I don't know if you were working at the time or a past project, but you were working on, I believe it was improving the conversion from the, um, the vibrational energy of the strings into that sound energy. Um, and I think you mentioned that you actually taught a course, or I think it was like an honors section on musical acustics. Am I remembering mm -hmm. that right? So to this day, I wish I was able yeah, to I still, do that class. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's very oh, well, I, I, diverse I kind of okay. end of it. I've, I've had quite a few bioengineerings who were in the honors college in that class. Mm -hmm. I, I've been teaching it every fall now for, I don't know, eight or nine years. Um, but yeah, it's making waves and medical imaging and musical acoustics. And I kind of try to draw draw uh, parallels or similarities between how sound, which is mechanical waves, propagates and radiates from musical instruments and kind of how there are different aspects of the, of the human physiology that we can analyze in the same way uh, using acoustics. So, but yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. That's such a, I, I think it would be like an uncommon comparison you don't really think about, but um, yeah, that's that's awesome. And I think uh, transitioning now kind of into that research, sure. um, you know, from that like kind of project and um, I mean, specifically like musical acoustics as an example, but that's generally outside the scope of what would be like biomedical uh, engineering and research. And so within your lab, the Acoustics and Vibrations Lab, is that, um, do you tend to have these very diverse kind of areas that you work in? Or is that more of like a, an example of something that's a little bit outside the scope of the, the work that you guys focus on? Well, I would say that, uh, that's a good question. I would say that th that's, a that's a little bit outside the scope of what we <laughs> We work on now in terms of, uh, for example, my students working on their thesis or dissertation research, although that the Heart Project did lead to three uh, master's uh, theses, but this is going back uh, 20, 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, but the, as with any, uh, pretty much any, any uh, faculty, um, my current research, the focus is typically related to grants um, and, and where, where the funding is. And so my funding you know, uh, is, <laughs> has nothing right now to do with harp acoustics, um, but it's still, I, I still use it, not just in that honors class, but in uh, other classes I've taught uh, some at the graduate level, uh, looking at acoustics in uh, biomedical engineering. And so it just, it's a nice, visual example to, to illustrate some concepts. So, but yeah, no, no, we're, we're, we, we have a couple projects. I can talk a little bit more about those or is there some, whatever, please ask me another question. Yeah, of course. Um, no, I think so. Um, kind of how you mentioned it, it is like the type of research you do, or I guess the specific projects seem to be variable based on uh, grants and kind of what is going on in that sense. Um, but so, yeah, I, I guess if you can start with maybe talking a little bit about more about uh, right now, what the focus is, sure. the lab, just maybe yeah, yeah. broadly, and then it would be great to hear about those projects kind of um, yeah. Yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, I can, I can 
over the really, I can kind of say over the past um, 10 years or so, there have been say 10, 15 years even, there have been two primary um, efforts uh, in my lab that is that have been you know, funded by grants, both from uh, NIH and, and NSF. And one of them has to do a lot with where I started with these guys from Rush who contacted me back in the late 90s. With them, um, we started looking at pulmonary acoustics and ways to diagnose um, different respiratory conditions based on uh, pulmonary the, the respiratory sounds are also by, based by on sending sound in and seeing how it transmits through the pulmonary system and, and use that as a, as, an, as a way to diagnose um, changes in the, in, the, in the anatomy of the lungs that are associated with injury or disease. That led into a significant effort I had for a number of years, which was funded by an NIH R01 grant and the, the title of it was called The Audible Human Project. And this was a playoff of, um, you go to the National Library of Medicine, which is part of NIH, they have something called the Visible Human Project, where basically they, they have these, this detailed catalog of medical images of cadavers mm -hmm. that were made available to the, the research community. So my goal with the Audible Human Project was to kind of create this comprehensive acoustic model of the pulmonary system and, and understand how it, how changes due to disease and, and injury alter how sound propagates uh, in the lungs and how we can use that for diagnostic purposes. So that, that area has been going for a while. It's, it's kind of dormant at the moment because that's, I don't have any funding in it in particular. I've had some recent kind of offshoot projects of it. Uh, one of the former UIC uh, student, Becca Allen, who now works for a company level X, she had a, got a master's degree with me where we, it, we used, um, it's kind of interesting. I had published something about 10 years ago where we were showing how we could um, percuss the sternum, drive the sternum and look at how the sound transmits through to the back and we could measure that. Uh, a researcher at uh, UC San Francisco picked up on that and developed a little handheld thing that could be used in the clinic mm -hmm. to drive the sternum and then use a stethoscope on the back. And he was using it to assess pneumonia and congestive heart failure. Becca Allen used it at UIC here. We have a very large sickle cell population. So we, um, she did some interesting studies on assessing uh, lung conditions in sickle cell patients. So that's one area I'm always, you know, interested in, in, in general, in the pulmonary system, lung acoustics. I just don't have much active there right now, other than we do have uh, something that we brought in here to UIC is the ability to do lung imaging using uh, hyperpolarized xenon, which is a very uh, unique capability. I think we're the only people in Chicago that can do that. So I had a grant to bring the equipment in and, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll have some research projects that'll utilize that equipment in the future. My main funded area of research right now is in elastography. And uh, that is, I have a number of students working on that. And elastography is based on the concept that you, if you vibrate someone or something, mm -hmm. 
and then you image the vibratory wave motion, that wave motion, how, the, how those waves are moving tells you something about the condition of the, the biological tissue, namely its stiffness, mm-hmm. its viscosity, and what we're finding lately also, particularly as we study muscle, is it also tells us about any pre-stress, pre-strain conditions on the tissue. And so this can be done non-invasively, non-destructively using MRI, mm-hmm. ultrasound, um, or it can be done like on the cornea if you have a line of sight using optical methods. So a lot of my research now is focused in that area, and that's been supported by both uh, NSF and uh, National Institutes of Health with uh, collaborators uh, on that project. Uh, primarily, our collaborators are at Northwestern and at the uh, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And when I say our, it's myself and Dieter Klatt and, and, our, and our students that work in our labs together. That sounds amazing. Um, I mean, all of them. (laughs) I think there's a lot of different ways to, um, I suppose, like interpret the methods that you're able to use uh, for these different applications. So that's, I mean, that's really exciting. Um, So, and Mm -hmm. this could be um, for past projects or current projects, but um, I was wondering if you could also specifically um, talk a little bit about the students' roles or responsibilities that they held um, on these projects. Um, oh, sure, yeah. Probably a distinction between you know, students doing um, their master's or their PhD versus undergraduate, but uh, yeah, generally, how do students contribute to this work? Yeah, uh, I mean, all these projects, of course, are involve students over the course of my career, I think I've had, I've worked with maybe 20 PhD students, another oh, wow. 20, 25 master's students, and as, as at least as many uh, undergraduate students. Um, and the product, you know, often the product of that research, in addition to their dissertation or whatever, is, is a, um, are journal articles. So, um, you know, almost all but a handful of my journal articles are co-authored with my students and that's mainly that's going to be uh the phd students are going to produce the most of those but there's also masters and undergraduate students that are co-authors on those journal articles um in terms of the the work yeah the 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 um the type of research i do i is a it is a combination of some analytical theoretical work uh a lot of computational work and, and that was kind of fortunate during COVID that, that we could continue with that research kind of inter- uninterrupted. Uh, and that computational work, a lot of that is involves some finite element analysis. So a lot of my, I usually have my, my grad students at least will mm-hmm. take a finite element analysis course. And then there's a lot of experimental work uh, using MRI for the most part. That's the big thing that we use, but we use some other, other uh, measurement methods as well that, image and measure vibratory wave motion. So yes, this uh, students are involved in all of this, all parts of this. I would, there's always a learning curve in the beginning in terms of um, with any aspect of that, the, the, the analytical work, just understanding some of the basic theory, being able to do finite element analysis. There, there's definitely a learning curve there. And then with the experiments, there's always uh, a learning curve Mm-hmm. Um, and often a lot of frustration as well in, in terms of experiments. 
Yeah, I, 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 I always think about, you know, like um, the different, uh, the, a lot of the experiments we do, they aren't necessarily the type where I say, oh, okay, I'm going to put uh, these 10, 20, 100 things here and I'm going to, I don't know, set them aside. The experiment will last for days, weeks, months. And then at the end, I'll, I'll do some statistical analysis on it. A lot of the experimental work we do is in developing the technology of elastography. The, the experiments may take minutes, seconds, hours, but it's the leading uh, up. Well, to it. you probably have to do, redo it uh, maybe uh, so many times until you, oh, you, can, you finally figured it out that you've optimized it and you got it right. Um, so what maybe shows up in the publication is like the last 1% of all that, all that, uh, you know, sweat and effort, but it, the tip you know, of the iceberg. Right. Right. But it's, hey, that's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, I always kind of, sometimes the students will get a little frustrated that um, things aren't seem to be going well, but then usually things will snowball and, mm-hmm. and it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. And then, and then, then we start to really roll. And that's, that's, that's fun when, when that happens and uh, somebody, you see the, the, the rewards of, of putting in all that effort to, to really understand something. So, yeah, I think, I mean, for me too, that's been, I think one of the most rewarding things is, you know, when you work on a project for however long you work on it, and then you are finally able to kind of see it come together. It's really makes all of it worth it. Um, aside from everything you do along the way, I think there's uh, a lot of great stuff to take from that too. And it is fun. Uh, but like you said, I think it could be frustrating. So that's actually a really important point. I think for students yeah. starting to get involved and especially bringing up the learning curve, you know, it's right. Right. On it's not end and on the yeah. research itself. I think there's a lot that could take some time. I, and right. Right. When I, when I teach a class, I, I try to construct the homework problems. doesn't always work in a way that, that the answer is hopefully straightforward, but when you're doing research, you don't. A lot of time, I don't know if there's an answer, but you know we'll, we'll we'll see what we can see, and I'm sure we'll learn something along the way. And we always we always end up having interesting interesting new discoveries that we can publish. Yeah, it's very serendipitous, I think, and just mm-hmm. generally in terms of research. Right, so. right, exactly. You may set off to f- figure one thing out or prove this or that. You may end up discovering, you know, that that didn't work out, but something else along the way popped up. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Before you mentioned um, kind of, I think having students take like a course and there's obviously, we just talked a little bit about that, like learning curve that comes with, I think joining any lab and getting involved, Mm -hmm. but um, speaking about your lab specifically, um, is there, is there anything that you recommend that students generally have experience with or know uh, technical or non-technical to start getting involved? Um, is there anything that helps being familiar with or that um, students should know if, if it's with equipment or things like that, that they can keep in mind when deciding that they'd like to uh, get involved in this area? Yeah, I, I think a lot of, well, a lot of the specifics of the instrumentation, you're not going to pick up in a, in a, in a the the equipment we use isn't something that's standard taught in taught in the lab. Now, there one exception I would say is you at least get an overview in um, BioE four twenty three, uh, which uh, Dieter Klatt teaches in terms of uh, MRI and, and other other imaging modalities. And the same with you know four 
21, you at least get that overview. So, you I mean, those are, I think, would be at the undergrad level, the very important courses that you take, would take, and that, but that course would typically be in the senior year. Yeah. Um, but, but aside, that's equipment. Um, I don't think our undergrads in the curriculum did not, the uh, funded element isn't a core requirement anywhere, but, um, and, and typically though, that's students who join, join my lab at the, like the master's level or PhD, if they haven't had funded element, that'll be one of the first courses I'll, mm-hmm. I'll highly recommend that they, they take and then we'll, they'll start using uh, a commercial uh, funded element software package, either ANSYS or console or typically what we use. Uh, and then other than that, a lot of, you know, we, what we do is computationally is in MATLAB and, but all of our students, I think are mm-hmm. hopefully getting proficient with MATLAB. Um, and uh, the course I teach by OE 310, I mean, some of every, a lot of the things there, I, the basic concepts of, of, um, of uh, what we call linear system analysis are, are applicable to studies of mechanical wave uh, motion of acoustics uh, and materials. So do, do your best, do your best in your, in your coursework. Um, and I don't know, those are, those are, I guess, the things I'm looking for mm-hmm. typically. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great to hear, um, especially because some of those courses are, um, are not requirements. So it's, it's always nice yeah. to know yeah. kind of the direction. There's, I mean, a lot that you can take at UIC. Um, so it does help to know kind of um, these like segues to it, be able to put that together. Right. And, and I was just thinking, we, we, we do have, um, especially through the GPI uh, guaranteed paid internship program, we've mm-hmm. had a few students. And, and of course, they haven't had those, those courses and they, they need to get through their math first. But I, I, another thing that we, we do a lot with is recently is trying to create um, computational models, i.e. finite element models based that are very precise and they're based on actual medical images. And so there's like, there's a lot of image processing work that goes on there. How do I take uh, an MR, a set of NR images that gives me not only the geometry, but may, if it's like a muscle or the brain, it also gives me the fiber orientation. I want to infuse that information into my, my finite element model. Um, and so that's something that I think that we've, we've had uh, some of the GPIP students get, get involved in and, and really, really help out with the, they may not understand exactly how we're going to use that in the finite element model, but it's very helpful in terms of, and they get familiar with all the, all the different uh, possibilities for different types of medical images and how we can analyze them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds very complicated, just like off the start. So I think that's definitely something that would be, I mean, even just, just doing that and learning how to um, mm-hmm. interpret it and work with that would be very helpful. Um, kind of going off a little bit more off that like learning curve and just segueing more into um, the lab environment. Um, I know you uh, mentioned having like a mix of at least graduate level, um, different graduate levels throughout the lab. Um, so in terms of like the interaction in the lab and how students work, would you say it's more of like a broad collaboration between students and like faculty, or is there more of like, a, I suppose, a structure um, or um, like a supervision in place between students of different graduate levels? I know different labs have kind of different ways that they go about it. Do you, um, are undergraduate students more in these like mentored positions with the upperclassmen or um, is it kind of separated out in that work? 
Uh, it's yeah, I'd say it's it's a little bit of a mix. Um, I, of course, any 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 of my students, they know they can reach me by email, and and you know we can talk at, at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do got it. It depends on towards the end of the semester. I'm thinking now we're at the end of the semester. Things have gotten kind of crazy. We we've canceled some of our weekly meetings, but typically we'll have a weekly meeting of the whole group. Um, and then usually like every other week, we typically will meet with all of uh, Professor uh, Dieter Klatz, uh, him, him and his students as well, because we do so many things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, aside from that, I uh, do try to have like weekly meetings with students. But then when it comes to, yeah, there are logical um, pairing up of things that that happens. So right now, I have a couple of uh, master students who are in the um, this Polytechnical di Milano program. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, one's with Milano and the other one's with Turin, uh, and they're trying to wrap up. and And um, their projects, there's there are experimental aspects to it, which has been very difficult to get moving on with COVID. I'm sure, yeah. Computational and and they had to do a lot of design of um, basically design of experiments to kind of their projects were to come up with new designs for elastography, some of the elastography we were doing. And so I have, they, they can't do everything, but there's complementary work being done by some of my other students that are in finite element analysis. So they're, they're kind of working together because uh, we use the, the computer simulations of finite element analysis to help us understand or interpret what we see experimentally. Uh, and then there are, um, some of the, there is some image processing involved there as well. And so I think there's also been some, probably some help from some of the, the undergraduate students, uh, maybe not directly, but indirectly mm-hmm. in, in terms of these projects. So I guess the, it's a long-winded answer, but they logically will team up um, because they're working on different aspects of the same project. Mm-hmm. Eventually we'll have publications where there'll be multiple co-authors on it. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I remember my own PhD studies. I came from a pretty, I guess, a pretty large lab uh, in terms of the number of students in the lab. It was maybe a dozen or so. Um, my my former advisor would not. I don't think he would feel insulted if I said that I probably learned more from the other students in the lab than I did from him. But I mean, that was just it was it was a, it was a, a positive environment where people really wanted to help each other out. And, you know, and it was like a, whatever, it was like a, you know, another, a family or whatever. And, and um, so it was a good experience. And, you know, I think it, it, it does make sense. Um, and different people have different skills. Um, one of uh, the uh, students who's been, he's an undergrad here is now a master's student, uh, Josh. Uh, I mean, he's really good at building things. So he's also been helping uh, my students who are designing experiments um, but he'll always have some good insight on on maybe better ways to mm-hmm. tweak the design this way or this that way, such that it can be more easily fabricated and put, put together. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, people come from very different experiences, um, and I think that interaction, even within like students and different graduate levels and all that, is very helpful. I mean, everyone has very different perspectives on approaching problems, and I think sometimes, you know, I've been like sure that there's a good way to go about it. And then I'm introduced to a different kind of way that someone else is used to, and it changes the whole process. So 
um, yeah, I mean, that interaction, I think, is very good to hear. And that's definitely one of the best parts, I think, of joining a lab. Uh, like you mentioned, it is kind of it grows into a family. So mm-hmm. um, that is, uh, I think, a pretty important part of um, of conducting research. And it's something to consider, too. Um, aside from kind of that breakdown between graduate levels and experiences, do you typically have a majority of bioengineering students in your lab or um, do you attract or um, kind of bring in students from other departments as well? Um, how does that look on that end? Uh, I Since I've come over to bioengineering, like officially, that was in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of my students have been bioengineering. I, I've had, um, I, I still had a few students um, that were with me at that time that continued with me. I think I, since I came over in 2009, I maybe I picked up uh, one additional PhD student in mechanical. And then I, one of these, uh, this, the student from Turin is actually in, in mechanical, but the, um, the rest of my lab has been bioengineering. I mean, it, I guess right now I have, I do, um, I advise or co-advise a couple of the uh, MD PhD students who are in the, the bioengineering program. They're part of the uh, NIH, uh, what they call it, medical MSTP, medical scientist training program. So they do two years of med school, then they do their PhD, and then they do their other two years of med school. So I have two two bioengineering students for that program. I have uh, two um, PhD students, uh, one's from our undergrad program, and then in bioengineering, and then I have um, two, uh, one, two, three. <laughs> I guess four master's students from bioengineering. Oh wow! Right so now, your, your one's hands are about full. to join, and, and, yeah. and, and then, yeah, then and then the one in mechanical, and then the undergrads currently, and they're all uh, bioengineering students. Okay. A couple of undergrads. Okay, that's yeah, that's good to know. Um, so for for getting involved, I suppose within this like area of research generally but specifically in the acoustics and vibrations lab, do you have any, um, I would say like initial pieces of advice for students looking to get involved? Um, I guess specifically with you, is there anything you're looking for in terms of like how students reach out? Should they prepare anything? Um, Yeah, I guess I've got a few, I can give advice relevant to myself, my lab and maybe a little more general. Um, I, it, 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 this is, I think this is even with you know, finding jobs, I think a lot of timing has a lot to do with it. So, I mean, I think I'm just telling people don't get discouraged in the sense that, um, yeah, I could, I could tell you what I'm looking for. You know, I want, you know, good students, good grades who have, you know, show an interest in this, this area. Um, I, how have I picked, I mean, I guess the students in the past, some have come through, I've had them in class or maybe they part of this GPIP program. Um, so I don't have any specific advice on that other than to just to, to keep trying. Uh, and um, I do, I mean, I, I mainly communicate by email um, and I do. So on the one hand, yes, I mean, email, I'll, I'll, keep it on file, but I can't, I mean, right now, I, I'm not sure if I, um, where I am in terms of being able to pick somebody up, but I'll definitely keep it in mind. Um, and, and may, I might, uh, be a, aware of something else that comes up 
Uh, I think I've, I've had that happen a few times. Students reached out to me. I really didn't have a slot, but I, I knew of somebody else or something else that was that was going on that was looking for somebody. And, and that reminds me also as undergraduates, I think a really good resource is um, these uh, NSF research experiences for undergraduates. So there are NSF sites, which we did I used to have a couple in this department. Currently we don't have any of these big site grants, um, but then also anyone with NSF funding like me, I, I'm able to go request um, funding to support undergraduates on research for one or two students. So I've, I, I um, have done that. Um, and uh, so, but if you go to the, um, I know Susan Lee sent out an email about this, that there, if you go to the NSF, NSF REU site, there's like a listing of all these, these are typically summer opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a summer opportunity, these are paid research experiences. Um, the last summer, of course, almost all of them, I think were virtual. They had to be because of COVID, which on the one hand, that's a shame, but on the other hand, it did mean you didn't have to relocate to wherever um, for, for this uh, experience. So, but I do encourage everyone to go take a, you know, go look at that and, and, and see what they can find there, uh, as well as email faculty that whose research they, they may be interested in. Um, it doesn't hurt to send an email. I can't guarantee you're always going to get a response, but go ahead and send that email. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, like I've said, I've, I some of my students has been, oh, yeah, they, were, they did really well in my class. They seem to really be interested in the material. And uh, we kind of picked it up from there. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, I think part of part of the goal with this podcast, too, is being able to give more specific kind of realistic advice on these things so that you know timing i think that's a very important thing to consider um and definitely not to get discouraged um again kind of the reason we started this too is because it can be intimidating to get started and sometimes it's discouraging depending on what your interests are and what you want to do so i think that's a that's a great piece of advice um generally and also good to know for your lab too students are interested to kind of maybe plan ahead and let you know, and then kind of see where that goes. But um, I think that's something important to consider generally with this. So uh, very much appreciate that um, um, kind of piece of advice and uh, talking about that too. Okay, all right, no, oh, my pleasure, yeah. Thank you, uh, well, so I just wanna thank you again for joining okay. us. Okay, oh, well, thank you. Um, we really appreciate it. I think this was very helpful and it was really interesting to hear well, about your work. I think you do a lot of diverse work uh, and your lab is really a lot of amazing applications. Well, so I, I, I thank you. And I think this is a great, um, a great new forum uh, that uh, I and uh, my other, I know I already, I heard uh, some good things from some of the other faculty that you've already interviewed that uh, they, you know, they really appreciate uh, what you are doing uh, with this. And uh, um, however I can help, I'm happy to help. Thank you for that great conversation, Dr. Royston. Next time, we'll be speaking with Dr. John Hetling from the Neural Engineering Vision Lab. To make sure you don't miss it or any other future episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit our website, embs.students.uic.edu, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, view our events calendar, and learn more about EMBS. 
This is Research Rundown with UIC EMBS. 